Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Aaron Stebe to the podcast. Aaron is Professor of Ecological Linguistics at the University of Gloucestershire. He has an academic background in both linguistics and human ecology and combines the two in his research and teaching which examines how our language and stories shape how we see ourselves and our relationship with other animals and the earth. So thank you very much, Aaron, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Great. Well, it's great to be here. Can you tell us maybe just by way of background at the beginning, a little bit about what you do, your work and your background more generally? Well, right now I'm a professor of ecological linguistics at the University of Gloucestershire, but I got into it by kind of a roundabout route because I started with computer systems engineering and trying to get robots to speak and to understand language. But then I soon found out that actually human language was more interesting than robot language. So I changed and I started looking at health communication and how the kind of words we use to talk about health really impact what kind of treatment we go for. And then I expanded that into not just the health of humans, but the health of the planet. So now I look at how language affects how we treat the natural world. We're facing all kinds of environmental issues right now, uh, all kinds of crises really of, of various kinds. What, what, what's on your mind at the moment, Aaron? Well, um, What's on my mind is what is on a lot of people's mind, and that is COVID. So it might not seem at first that COVID is an ecological issue, but it very much is, because it's about the relationship of humans with other humans and with the natural world and with the virus. And it also impacts on different communities in different ways. And there's a real social justice element to COVID but not just that. I mean, this is a chance for us to really rethink what kind of society we're in. And people have been finding new values. They've been really appreciating being out in nature and appreciating other people and developing communities. And it's like a real chance to kind of start again and rebuild a much more environmentally beneficial society. Right. That, that's interesting that you say that. I mean, it's all still unfolding. There's a lot happening, as you say. Uh, and there, there does seem to be substantial changes in people's values. And at the same time, there are other things happening. Government procurement here in the UK being pushed through under special legislation without scrutiny and so forth. Uh, I mean, a lot happening. I mean, are you optimistic from what you see at the moment? Well, I mean, it's hard to be optimistic about the future because all of the ecological issues that we were facing before haven't gone away. Uh, and then we've got COVID on top of that. So I think it would be dangerous to be optimistic about the future. But there is one thread which I am optimistic about, and that is that we've seen that we can make massive changes to our society, to our culture. I mean, we, we spent months where we weren't even going out and just having an hour's exercise. We, the shops were all closed. The airlines had stopped running. We can make huge changes if we need to when we're faced with an emergency. Yes. And now we know that. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now, what is ecolinguistics? 
Well, eco-linguistics looks at how language influences the way we treat the environment, which could be anything from advertising, encouraging us to buy far too much stuff, right through to nature poetry and how nature poetry encourages us to protect and value the natural world. So it's any kind of ways that language influences our behavior, either to destroy the world or to protect the ecosystems that life depends on. Right, the, the term ecolinguistics, when people think of linguistics, it feels like quite a specialized arena looking at very precise languages and sentence structure and parts of sentences and grammar and so forth. Yeah, and, and that's because that's what linguists do. Um, and you do need that kind of technical detail to really uncover the hidden messages behind the ways of using language. Now, I know the term eco-linguistics can be a bit off-putting, but my reason for using it is because I'm trying to encourage linguists to think about not just racism and sexism and homophobia, which is, tends to be the kind of topics that linguists analyze, but to go beyond that and also think about ecological issues as well. So I have a mission, really, I have lots of missions, but one of them is to get linguists involved in ecological issues, because I think linguists have a lot to offer. What can a study of language tell us about our relationship with nature and how it's changed over time, our estrangement from nature? Well, I've got this concept of erasure, and that often nature is erased from how we're talking and thinking about the world. So now we're far more likely to come across animals and plants through nature programs or cuddly toys or YouTube videos or books. We're kind of losing that kind of direct connection with the natural world around us. I and mean, you can see this in the kind of language that is used. I've got so many examples. Uh, maybe I'll just start with like uh, economics textbooks. So in economics, nature, the natural world is often just not thought about at all. So this example from an economics textbook, which is talking about a bakery, and it talks about the bakery doubling the amount of equipment and the number of workers. And it says that this doubles the amount of bread produced. So if you have more equipment and you have more workers, you produce more bread. And this kind of ignores the raw materials for the bread, which come from nature. So it ignores the fields, the, the forests that may have been destroyed to create the fields, um, the water that you need to produce the bread. Nature just disappears. Uh, and this is something which, which people have noticed. So Williams and McNeil say, raw materials used as inputs in the production process and any other services provided by the natural environment were omitted from consideration altogether in economics. Amazingly, they still are. First-year economics students are still taught in almost all the currently popular textbooks that manufacturers produce their products using only labor and machines. Yes, I mean, so what's interesting is, is, you know, you start from a linguistic perspective there talking about the language, but quite quickly you're into the, the, a realm of ideas and how the world works. And I got a bit of a chicken and egg maybe there to try and unpack a little bit. But to what extent is that really about the language that's being used, about the ideas that we have at a particular moment, that about how an economy works, for example, or about how different aspects of society operate? Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about an economy, there is no such thing as an economy. You can't smell it. You can't touch it. An economy is something which is constructed entirely through words. And it's constructed in a particular way through words. So in fact, all of our concepts come through words. And if we want to change those concepts, we have to change the words. How, how important is language here, Aaron? That Take neoliberalism, for example. It's a powerful set of ideas and policies. What actually changes if you change the language? Well, the... 
the language encourages us to value certain things. Um, it includes certain things, it highlights certain, certain things, and it hides certain things. It represents some things as positive and to be valued, and some things as negative and to be hated. So uh, what we talk about actually is discourse. So it helps to move slightly away from language and talk about discourse. So discourse is both particular ways of talking and particular conceptualizations that underlie those ideas of talking, those, sorry, those ways of talking. Now, discourses, that doesn't necessarily communicate very well with people. So I tend to talk about stories. So we've got these underlying stories, and we've got a story from neoliberal economics that humans are fundamentally selfish, that all we want to do is to gather together a huge pile of goods that the economy, the goal of the economy is just to grow and get bigger at all costs. There's a whole set of concepts associated with neoliberalism and a whole set of ways of talking that encode those concepts and encode those stories. So it's these stories that are problematic and ecolinguistics tries to expose those problematic stories and tries to search for new stories. And so we could turn to, for example, new economics, and we could look at new economics for new stories about the economy, about what's valuable. Um, and then we could start to think about um, economic growth in a very different way. Yes, absolutely. This question of how you frame things, I think, is very interesting, and I'd like to talk about that. I'm wondering whether you could talk a little bit about some of the ways in which we language the uh, environmental issues that, that, that surround us at the moment. I think I, I found some of your talks and uh, writings on this very, very interesting. You know, for example, talking about you know, like the climate problem. Now, many people talk about it like that. What, what, what happens when you frame it like that, Aaron? Well, when you see uh, climate change as a problem, then that sets it up with a particular frame, a particular way of viewing it. So with a problem, you have the problem and then you have the solution. And when you've solved the problem, then climate change disappears. Now, that's a bit of a problem because we know that climate change is not just going to disappear. So we're already feeling the effects of climate change we know that climate change is going to be worse. So if we just see it as a problem and we look for the solution, then we ignore the other side, which is adaptation, that we know that climate change is here and it's getting worse and we need to adapt our societies and our agricultural systems to climate change. Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, what about the term climate crisis? Um, now, it's often said that uh, when it comes to uh, messaging about the environment, that, that in environmentalists and environmental thinkers have been overly negative and, and pronouncing the, on the, the negative impacts and possibilities from limits to growth and so forth. And yet it seems at the same time, in terms of um, impacting uh, the public opinion, that it does work, that actually talking about the, the negative side of things, the, 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 the worrying things, the, 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 that actually uh, impacts the way people think about these, these questions. And uh, yet at the same time, Calling it a crisis brings in uh, certain ways of responding to a crisis, certain kind of urgent ways of dealing with things like we've had with COVID and certain kinds of decision-making procedures that may be over, over, uh, that may be overlooked and so forth. What, what, what is your thoughts about you talking about it as a crisis? Well, yes. So as you're saying, if, if it's a crisis, then that demands action. Um, and Caroline Lucas, a Green MP, um, she was talking about climate change as a security threat. So this is going to be even more than uh, you know, a crisis. It's actual threat to our security. Um, I've got a quote from her. She says, instead of treating the climate crisis as an environmental issue to be dealt with by environment and energy departments alone, we need to reframe it as the overwhelming threat to national and global security, which it is. So when you frame climate change as a threat or a crisis, then that demands that we have some kind of action to solve it. Uh, that might be better than 
um, it's a problem and we have all the solutions and we just have to implement them, which is something that I, I hear often. Sometimes you do need to talk about the negative side um, because that's the, the realistic side. Very interesting. Now, uh, I, I'm, I'm interested, again, in a word and naming. Uh, degrowth is a very powerful way, I think, of thinking about some of the big problems we have in the world today coming from overconsumption and so forth. I was thinking and, and wondering about the term degrowth because it automatically, I guess, raises the specter of growth. It's also a negative in a sense of something. It's, it's, it's the opposite of, of, of growth. Can you talk a little bit about what that kind of naming, some of the maybe implications of that kind of naming? Yeah, well, this is a very common issue for eco-linguistics is around growth, because growth is something which is always going to sound positive. If you compare growth with shrinkage, then shrink is always going to have that kind of negative aspect to it, and growth is always going to be have that positive aspect. So people do experiment with things like degrowth, um, but there's other ways to do it. So it's possible to kind of move away from the idea of growth completely. And instead of talking about growth as the goal of society, you could talk about well-being as a goal of society, or you could talk about happiness as the goal of society. So from one aspect, you can kind of play with the word growth. Uh, and in fact, people have talked about negative shrinkage instead of growth. But you could also just find a new discourse, a new way of talking about what's important in the world and just move away from growth. Yes, yes. And the final one on the words is the, the movement from, you know, uh, climate change, global warming, climate breakdown. And, and, and you know, the, the question of language has become uh, getting a bit more attention, getting more attention with the Guardian, other newspapers and other people, how they talk about it. Just wondering in those three terms there, uh, have you any observations about the, the kind of ways of framing that come from using this language? Yeah, well, um, I think we need to have a variety of different framings. That it, It's not really good to say, well, this one's good, this one's bad, um, that we do need a variety. So we need some framings where, which call attention to the crisis, to break down, to climate catastrophe. But you could also have other framings, like uh, climate change is an opportunity. So it's an opportunity to do things different and better. Um, you have climate change is a predicament. So... A predicament is something that is not going to go away, but something that we have to respond to. Um, you could have something like climate change is an incurable illness. Okay, now that, that sounds really negative, but it does reinforce the fact that climate change is not going away. And people who have incurable illnesses need to manage their illness and, and live as well as they possibly can, despite having this thing that is not going away. So yes, many different ways to, to frame climate change. And I do think that we need some variety rather than just saying, this one's good, this one's bad. Yeah, very interesting. So you talked a little bit about stories there. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe the stories that are like fish and water? They're there and we, we take them for granted, I suppose. And uh I guess uh, at the heart of this, I mean, you, you touched on earlier the effect of advertising, for example, and advertising language and ideas of economic growth. And it seems if you pick up a newspaper, even a newspaper that has a, you know, might have my front page, might have coverage of, of you know, particular environmental uh, crisis or particular issue. And then it's the rest of the newspaper suffused with the, the, the good news about economic growth or the disappointment about economic growth and so forth. So I guess that's a pretty uh, dominant way of framing the way we're living our lives at the moment. Yeah, so um, stories. So by stories, I'm talking about cognitive structures, so mental models. So stories are what's in our mind. And stories influence how we think, how we talk, and how we act. And certain stories, like the stories of advertising, are damaging. And they encourage us to buy lots of unnecessary stuff, uh, which then has an environmental impact. Um, so an example, I've got an example of an advert, and this is an advert for a vacuum cleaner. 
So the advert goes, life isn't always neat and tidy. It's about laughing, crying, loving, dancing. So we've developed the new quick click tool change system to save you energy and time to enjoy what we've all been put into the world to do. Live. So you see with this, it's not like buy this vacuum cleaner and it will clean your floors well. It's buy this vacuum cleaner and your life will be enhanced in this deep way. And it's got things like loving and dancing and living and finding your purpose. And these are all things that are actually important and will actually benefit our lives, whether we keep our old vacuum cleaner or buy the new one. And that's what the stories of advertising do. So they say, if you buy this product, you will find happiness. And they convince us by representing something which would actually make us happy, like loving and dancing, and then pretending that somehow buying this product will enable us to do these things that would actually make us happy. And how influential do you think advertising actually is? Enormously influential, uh, which is why billions of pounds are spent on it. And let me tell you what I think advertising does. So we have our neoliberal economics and neoliberal economics represents the consumer as somebody who is selfish. So this is a quotation from a neoclassical economics textbook. It says, more is better than less. Goods are assumed to be desirable. Consequently, consumers always prefer more of any good to less. In addition, consumers are never satisfied or satiated. More is always better. So we've got these textbooks representing people as selfish and just wanting to purchase more and more things. But people aren't actually built that way. Because when we've got enough, we've got enough. And then we can spend time with family and we can go for walks and we can find our satisfaction through ways that don't involve purchase. So what advertising is doing is it's making this selfish consumer that's described in the economics textbooks, it's making that consumer come to life. Well, that suggests that we're very easily influenced, really. If, as you say, you know, we have these other values which are important to us, surely somebody writing some text like that is hardly going to change our values. Yeah, well, this is where we're so saturated. So we get advertising everywhere and we get the same story over and over again. Now, I do think that we're naturally critical. So we don't just automatically absorb these stories that we are critical and we do have values and we do think about them. But if we're so saturated and it's all around us in the media everywhere, then sometimes it's like the only story that's available to us, like, like economic growth is good. So you find that all the time in news reports um, and textbooks and everyday conversation. Every time the economy grows, then that's represented as something really positive. And every time it shrinks, that's something really negative. So I think that it's very influential. Now, we are naturally critical. Now, my point is that ecolinguistics exists to help people to become even more critical. So becoming even more aware of the stories around us so that we can resist them. Yeah, yeah. How do stories change, Aaron? So what we want to do is to help change the stories that our society is based on. So the first thing that we need to do is to realize that these things that we've been brought up with that are all around us that we think of as completely normal and natural, we have to recognize that they're just stories. That doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, but what it means is that they're not the only way of thinking about reality, that there are other possible stories. So firstly, we realize that the stories that surround us in everyday life are just stories. And then we ask the question, are these stories useful? Are they taking our society in a direction that is healthy and will lead to a better environment? Or are these stories that we live by, are they actually really destructive? And then if they're destructive, then we need to search for new stories to live by. 
So this is something that happens at an individual level. What about the, the, the media? And uh, you've been looking at uh, language for and, 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 and ways of framing and thinking about how we communicate for some time. What's your assessment of the, the, the way the media is dealing with uh, environmental questions today, at least in what you see in the UK? Yeah, well, this is where the, the media tends to have a kind of a stock response to anything. Um, and it, the media needs to become more critically reflective of how they're representing things. Uh, so one example of that is The Guardian. And whenever there was a heat wave, the Guardian's response would be to show pictures of people having ice creams and playing in water and happily on beaches. Yes. And on today's newspaper as well. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, yeah. They saw one exactly that, talking about the heat wave next week. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they always represent heat waves as, as positive and things that people are happy and gorgeous weather and fantastic weather. But then the Guardian, they realize that, well, actually, heat wave is a symptom of climate change and thousands of people are dying because of these heat waves. Maybe it's time to represent them a bit differently. Um, and so that's the kind of awareness that, that I want to see. And so the Guardian published a paper which said, well, you know, we've got to stop having these, these pictures of ice cream and um, instead have pictures, for example, in Australia when they had the terrible heat wave, you know, pictures of dead kangaroos. Um, to kind of change that story that heat waves are good. Uh, unfortunately, they, they, they seem to have forgotten that and they're still going with the ice creams. But, um, you know, that's the kind of awareness that we want to see in the media. Yes, yes. And, and I mean, this is your specialist area. You've done a lot of research in this area. Can you talk a little bit about how well understood, uh, how, how aware different bodies, different groups are of, of, of the impact of language in this way? I, I think that they aren't, and that when you point out to people that the language choices that they use are telling these underlying stories that they might not actually agree with, they're really fascinated by it. So, for example, I've uh, looked at the language of United Nations reports and just how they talk about the natural world usually as resources um, and stocks, you know, biotic components, just this kind of very technical economic way of talking about nature. And I, I say to them, well, you know, underlying this is this story that nature is just an object. And if you really want people to value nature, then you need to start representing it, not just as stocks of biotic components, but as actual animals and plants and trees and rivers and forests and you need to have a more vivid kind of representation to tell the story that nature is valuable. So when I point out these things to people in the United Nations about the kind of language and the underlying messages that it's conveying, they say, wow, that's that's amazing. And you know, we we're gonna have to change our language. And I get that in various fields where I go in and I analyze people's language and and I point out the underlying stories and people aren't aware of them and they're so pleased to discover it and and get some tools to change the stories that they're conveying. Yeah that's very interesting but I guess some groups are aware of the power of language and some groups have a vested interest in presenting the uh, environmental uh, issues in a particular way that might be in their benefit. And the lobbyists have, for example, the fossil fuel industry, we know greenwashing uh, is not unheard of. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um, we talked about neoliberalism uh, earlier on, you know, and, and, and what's often not talked about is the fact is this just didn't emerge as a set of ideas or just emerge as a practice. It was, you know, think tanks working on this for decades and presenting their ideas in very particular ways, finally honing how they described and uh, how they presented their ideas. Yeah, so this is what we're up against, really. And that is a lot of the stories are, as you say, very carefully calculated for a particular goal, uh, and that goal is is usually for very rich people to get even richer at the expense of everyone else. So you've got particular stories of 
neoliberalism that, as you're saying, are created by powerful groups and spread by powerful groups. And the way they spread them is hegemonic, which means that they represent them as just naturally the only way to think about things, that of course people are fundamentally selfish and um, of course environmental regulation is there to destroy our freedom and um, they represent the the stories as just being natural common sense. Um, so yes, yeah, so countering them is is pointing out that they're not just natural common sense. That that you know these are deliberately constructed and not for your benefit, but for the benefit of a very small set of people. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I, I'm also wondering. Coming back to this idea, um, again, a little bit of the language and the ideas. And I wonder to what extent you think there's uh, any useful analogies with, with, I guess, political correctness. And, and certain groups of people uh, struggle with being, I guess, told, or, or however it is uh, framed, that, that the language they're using embodies various kinds of prejudices and so forth. Uh, and they may not be conscious of them, but sometimes raising these issues is a delicate, a delicate matter. Um, is there something similar? Can we learn anything from, from how we've seen that situation unfold when it comes to talking about ecolinguistics? Yeah, absolutely. So um, political correctness is often pointing out that a particular word is bad in some way and then saying everyone suddenly has to stop using this word and then replacing it with a word which is better in some way. Um, and people hate that. People don't like to be told what to do. Um, and there's a, a vast movement against political correctness. So I was reading one book and it said that we should stop talking about farm. Uh, we should talk about enslavement facility instead. Oh. And anyone who says the word farm is just wrong. <laughs> oh, dear. So quite rightly, this is ridiculed. Uh, and I, I really tried to distinguish ecolinguistics from that. So in ecolinguistics, we're not saying this word is good, this word is bad. We're searching for inspirational forms of language which help people to achieve what they want to achieve in the world. So certainly it's not about saying you're wrong for using this particular kind of language. It's really this is the kind of language which you're using. These are the kinds of stories that underpin it um, and helping people to express what they want to express in inspirational ways and tell the stories that they want to tell. So yeah, really you have to move away from any hint of political correctness. Right, right. Very interesting. So how does this awareness unfold in the world? What are the ways that becoming more aware? So you, 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 you write, you teach, you know, your book, the, the videos and so forth. Uh, what other ways uh, in society are these ideas becoming uh, active? Well, we've got the International Ecolinguistics Association. So this is a group of 800 ecolinguists who are working on these issues. Uh, we created a free online course, uh, The Stories We Live By, uh, which 200,000 people have visited and 2,000 people have, have taken the course. I work with uh, companies, with United Nations, with all kinds of organizations, you know, helping them to look at the kind of language that they use um, and making recommendations about language. Um, and then, yes, there's all the students that all of us teach as well. Um, really trying to get ecological awareness and ecolinguistic awareness into as many spheres as we possibly can. So, 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 Aaron, where can we look for new stories to live by, these inspiring ways of, of framing things? Well, there's lots of different places to look for this. Um, you can look at traditional cultures around the world who have ideas about the value of nature that are very different from Western ideas. So I've looked a lot in Japan at Japanese haiku, Japanese animation, um, and just the way that it represents the natural world is special and 
valuable. And of course, indigenous cultures, um, indigenous cultures are oral cultures which have developed in harmony with a natural environment, and they have to protect that natural environment. Otherwise, those cultures would have disappeared a long time ago. So if you look at indigenous cultures, you can often find ways of using language which are very much attuned to the environment around them. Um, but then we've also got things like lyrical science. So if you look at the writing of Rachel Carson, for instance, she writes about the science of environmentalism, but she does it in a very lyrical way that draws on literary tropes to make her writing inspiring. Then we've got nature writing. Um, we've got different kinds of movements like the slow food movement or new economics movement. Um, there's a lot of movements that have sprung up in opposition to these uh, dominant stories. So many, many places we can look for new stories to live by. Now, you talked about nature writing. Can you talk a little bit about science communication? Uh, you talked about the IPCC. Inevitably, science operates with certain ways of thinking about things. They think about probabilities. Uh, it's very statistically oriented. It's valuable. It, it's, very, it's important. And yet, it is less effective in ways of communicating with the general public. What's your observation there? Have you engaged, worked with groups of scientists? Have you any uh, sense of what, what direction to go in there? Yeah, now this is hard because um, scientists are very cautious um, because they want to represent things in ways that reflect reality as closely as possible. Um, so the IPPC will say something like, human influence is extremely likely to have been the dominant cause of observed warming since the mid 20th century. So they'll use words like extremely likely, but then people hear that and then they think, oh, so it's not certain then. Whereas people on the other side, the climate change deniers will use language in a much more certain way. Uh, I've got a great quote here from Webster Tarpley, who's a conspiracy theorist. And he says, the notion of anthropogenic climate change is a fraud. The idea that the planet is getting warmer and that human activity is somehow responsible is a pseudoscientific fraud. It's a big lie, it's a monstrosity. So you've got to compare that with, well, it's extremely likely. And you can see the problem with the balance there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, when I first came across the, the, the idea, the term ecolinguistics, I, I guess it wasn't obvious to me that what you are talking about is these stories we tell and what you mean by story is, you know, these conceptual models of how the world operates. How effective is it or are there uh, issues around focusing on, on it on a linguistic level, framing it that way, when other groups of people, for example, are, are, are you know, talking about degrowth economics or steady state economics. They're getting straight in there. They're saying this is uh, one way of, of, of an economy operating, which has all of these other kinds of uh, uh, side effects which haven't been considered, etc. And these are new models of economics. Yeah, well, I do think that that's essential for people to be going off and developing the new models, but we also need people who stand back and have a look at the language of the new models and what it is that is effective about the language of these new models. So, the, you know, when news reporters are reporting about the economy, then we, have, we can give them kind of you know, ways of talking about the economy that can help move away from like the, the fixed ways that they, they use. So yeah, it's about you know, stepping back and um, looking at a range of different ways of representing the world uh, and then judging those different ways according to uh, an ecological framework. Uh, so we, yeah, so it's, it, it is necessary to have people who step back and look at how language is, is creating and structuring the world around us. Yes, it's interesting. When you talk about ecological framework, what, what, what do you have in mind there, Aaron? Well, it's very easy to say, well, this one is good or this one is bad. 
but things are only good or bad when you are comparing them to some kind of criteria. So in ecolinguistics, we have what we call an ecosophy, which is an ecological philosophy. And that is a framework that we use to judge stories against. And the reason why we use that word is because it's a values framework that considers humans and the more than human world. So that's why it's called an ecosophy. So what we do is re reveal the stories that underpin our civilization. We judge them according to our ecosophy as being beneficial or destructive. If we think they're destructive, then we resist them and work against them. And if we think they're beneficial, then we promote them. So when somebody talks about, so would, would, do people have their own, as it were, personal ecosophy? And what would that look like? Yeah, so every analyst will have their own personal ecosophy that they use to reveal these underlying stories. So my ecosophy, uh, to put it very briefly, actually I can put it in one word, is living, where living is something that needs to be celebrated and respected. So my ecosophy is about respecting humans and other species and allowing them to live their lives according to their nature. There's much more to it than that. There's also environmental limits and um, social justice and lots of other things. But at its heart, it's about allowing people to live with high well-being, not just now, but into the future, and not just humans, but all species. Well, very interesting. Now, outside the world of eco-linguists and their ecosophies, for the man in the street or for, for people who care about the environment more generally, is it helpful to think about articulating, being explicit about an ecosophy? And also, is it something that you can then think about whether or not one's congruent with that? Yeah, exactly. I think this is very valuable for everyone. So the first thing I get my students to do is to think about their ecosophies So what is important. Because if you don't think about this, you'll just accept the prevailing stories of the society around you about what's important. So I get students right from the beginning to start to think about what's important. So who matters? So do humans matter? Do other species matter? Do future generations matter? And it's not that they come up with their final ecosophy then and there. An ecosophy is something which evolves over the years as you get exposed to things that you read and you have experiences in the world. And I think everyone needs to critically reflect on their own values framework, their own ecosophy throughout their life. Because if we don't, we're just going to absorb the values of our culture, our society, like a sponge. Absolutely. Presumably, some of this is hidden, uh, hidden values, hidden assumptions and so forth. What's the best way to approach doing this? It's, it's sitting on one's own, uh, maybe reading a book or something, you have an idea of what one's ecosophy is, but actually may not be really the case. It's, it's something that might be a little bit hidden. Well, I think when you develop your ecosophy, it's useful to have a look at a range of other ideas. So um, there's various ecosophies to look at. There's social ecology, there's political ecology, there's cornucopianism, there's deep green resistance, transition, many philosophical frameworks out there. And it's really useful to have a look at those and see which of those frameworks resonate with how you see the world in terms of the, the facts of what's going on and what you personally think of as mattering, as being important. Right. Where would one find out about those kinds of frameworks, Aaron? Well, there's our free online course, which I think I mentioned before. And the very first thing that we do is to get people on that course to reflect on their ecosophies. And there's also my book, which is Ecolinguistics, Language, Ecology and the Stories We Live By. Second edition is coming out next year. And the first chapter of that is very much about developing an ecosophy. Yes, yes. We've talked about neoliberalism a, a little bit. 
Various people have, have argued, and even uh, the IMF, I think, said the age is over, neoliberalism is over, and we're moving into a new kind of economics, and uh, even you know, the Financial Times, the future thinking and purpose-based organizations and things like that. Are you optimistic? Do you follow that? Do you, do you think that that's the case? Do you, you think that the, when you look at the language that's being used, is it changing in a, in a fundamental way? It's very slow. Um, and this is the problem. So like the sustainable development goals, they came out with great fanfare and I've analysed them very carefully. And I was disappointed that the, it's, it's still about sustainability being a combination of economic growth and protecting the environment. And there's nothing in there which says that, well, actually, we might need to consume less. Um, we might need to rethink our ideas of economic growth and get some new goals for society. Um, so I think that we do have these green shoots that are coming up and we see people talking about well-being and that we need to rethink the economy um, and that just economic growth on its own is not enough. But then you have like this very solid mainstream where this story is the stories of neoliberalism are so entrenched. And then you have like the think tanks, which are there to deny climate change and to deny COVID as well, to deny coronavirus. And those denials are done in the name of freedom. So this is another mode that neoliberalism is offering so climate change is an attack on our freedom to drive big cars and any kind of legislation about coronavirus is an attack on our freedom to do what we want so this this idea of freedom is quite at the center of neoliberalism and it's still very prevalent even if we're seeing some small changes yeah. What about the Green New Deal? Have you looked at that at all, Aaron? Yeah, absolutely. So Green New Deal, fantastic. Um, but with all of these things, it's very hard for someone to stand up and say, we can have a Green New Deal. And in that Green New Deal, we're going to consume less. So it's always about more. Okay, we're going to do it in a more kind of environmentally friendly way um, and but it's it's often it's about increasing the economy it's about jobs it's the same stories but packaged in a greener package a huge improvement over neoliberalism but sometimes we need to go further and have absolutely new stories yes absolutely um the anthropocene a relatively new term that's emerged also, interestingly, there, there are variants on that. There's, there's the Capitalocene, there's the Cthulhocene, um, which, you know, get at different aspects of, of, of the question, maybe different logics and so forth. Do you find that a useful term? Uh, I find the debate a very useful debate. So I, I like the idea of the Anthropocene kind of highlighting the fact that humans have influenced every part of the world and that we have left the Holocene. The Holocene was a relatively benign um, climate system that uh, allowed human life to flourish, and we're leaving that, and we're entering into something new. So that Anthropocene idea highlights that. But of course, it's anthropocentric. It's like, well, you know, should we be centering human experience over everything? Uh, and I don't want to say, again, this one's good, this one's bad, but I welcome this debate that we're talking about times have changed and what is it that is changed and what are we going to be highlighting about that change? Yes, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Is there a lot of talk about restoration of nature and uh, there's restoration camps, there's restoration programs. I think the UN is a major, I think we're the decade of, of you know, nature restoration and so forth. Um, have you come across this? Have you thoughts on that? Because presumably it, you, you have some idea of some base case that you're trying to restore. And again, that presumably is up for grabs in terms of who defines it and what it looks like. And uh, I'm just wondering whether you've, you've come across that, that kind of uh, people uh, talking about that. 
Uh, I have come across that, and and it's exactly the debate that you were talking about. So this is the idea of uh, restoring an ecosystem to exactly the same way that it was, you know, a hundred years ago. Or do you go back a hundred years, or do you go back two hundred, or do you go back three hundred? So there's certainly debates uh, about this idea of of restoration, and also the climate has changed so do you want exactly the same ecosystem in a particular place um, as you had a hundred years ago when actually the climate is different so again this is another area where there's debates about various ways of framing what we're doing so should we be restoring nature or should we think instead about the health of nature so should we frame it in terms of health and improving the health of nature Uh, lots of different ways to think and what's important is not to get stuck in a rut and just think about it one way but to be very aware of the advantages and disadvantages of particular ways of representing things Uh, and if there are disadvantages think about uh, other alternatives well you you say that and that's uh makes a lot of sense but i suppose when we see we see this with the coronavirus now but you can see it in in aspects of the way people talk about the, you know the climate crisis or whatever it's the sense of urgency and the one thing that you don't have time for in a situation of urgency is thinking and uh and some people have made the point that you know so much of the way we've been talking about and the reality of the uh, climate change global warming whatever has been presented to us is in very scientific terms and very um technocratic terms as well and actually we, we the the humanities uh, the contributions to the humanities to these questions has 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 been less and we need it Oh, absolutely. And um, in the UK at the moment, um, humanities are seen as low quality courses because the salaries that graduates get are lower than the, the salaries that science and business graduates get. Whereas actually, humanities is essential for helping determine the direction that society is going in. Science is great for the engine to get society moving. But what about the moral compass? What about you know where we're going? And that's where we need humanities. Yes, yes. Any observations on politics, the use of language with respect to the environment? Any observations in in, in political life? Uh, maybe in the UK. I mean, uh, the United States is something else, uh, more developed, uh, maybe. Uh, but have you uh, any reflections on 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 how politicians are are using language? Well, the the problem I find is politicians right across the spectrum uh, will only talk about the environment um, in terms of the economy and, you know, doing things for the sake of green jobs and uh, improving the economy. Um, and what they, what I very rarely hear in politics is environmental action, which will actually benefit the quality of people's lives so not the amount of income that they've got in the bank but actually the quality of their lives their health their well-being uh, but also and this is absolutely missing is the quality of the lives of other species so some genuine care and concern about other species seems to be very much missing from uh, political discourse Yeah, that's very interesting. Can we maybe just finally talk a little bit about culture? And a lot of what you've been talking about is, is on the one hand, the, the, the writing and obviously the ideas that underlie that, the stories uh, that underlie that. Also, the media, we live in a media-saturated age. Hollywood's uh, still very influential. So I, I, have you any observation on culture, where we are at the moment in terms of how novelists are looking at these questions how influential is that and to what extent is that overwhelmed do you think by the power of the media in terms of films and, and so forth and if you have any observations in general as to how media is currently framing and, and looking at the uh, ecological questions that we're facing right now are, are there a few trends a few observations you have there um well i i mean i guess you know one trend is Um, just the the way that uh, a lot of media is sponsored by advertising and big business or the media is owned by corporations and the corporations are there to make a profit. 
and often that means the genuine deep reflective thinking about you know, changes to society gets suppressed and that there's a lot of hidden corporate messages in the kind of films and media that we get exposed to um, because it's in the the interests of corporations to encourage us to buy lots of things i mean so if you look at amazon so amazon sells you stuff and it gives you tv programs it makes your tv programs and so it will create the kind of tv programs that encourage a buying mood uh, and that works against all of our ecological concerns so that's one small point uh, among many others yes yeah, yeah. So most of us use language more or less unconsciously, I suppose it's fair to say. Um, how, how can we use it in more strategic ways? Uh, well, this is what is so important about eco-linguistics. And, you know, that is becoming aware of the texts that surround us in the society that we're living in and becoming aware of the underlying stories behind those texts, particularly the stories which aren't benefiting us and they aren't benefiting the world. And instead, they're benefiting a very small minority of people at the expense of everyone else, realizing that these stories aren't working. And then searching for new stories to live by. And when we find these new stories to live by, weaving them into our speaking, our writing, um, so that we can spread these these new stories to live by. Yeah, so the spread of ideas is another interesting area. I, I suppose if you look at what you know generally called free market economics and and the ideas underlying that about selfishness and so forth, it, it's in people's well it, by and large in their economic interest to you know to be allowed to have more money and pursue these ideas. When, when it comes to ideas that, as you say, may not be uh, on the surface um, and, and in other ways not so attractive, like stopping you know, your holidays or stopping particular consumption uh, patterns, how, how do you think that the, the attractiveness of an idea impacts its virality? So if, if it's like, go and have fun, do what you want, you know, this is all good, by, by pursuing your own personal you know, uh, welfare, you're helping everybody and so forth, that's... Is that idea likely in some way or have some more of a viral quality than an idea that says, I mean, I've answered it already, haven't I? More a hair shirt version of that. Okay, well, I think that you brought up this story that environmentalism is about the hair shirt. That hair shirt is a kind of a metaphor for sacrifice and making your life worse. Um, but that's not how we need to frame it. We could look at opportunities to massively increase your well-being by moving away from some of the material consumption, which doesn't actually make you happy in the end, and moving towards things that do genuinely make you happy. Yeah. Uh, New, e New Economics Foundation has done some great work about what actually makes you happy. And so long as you've got your food and your shelter and the basic things you need, it's things like reconnecting with nature, spending time with people, learning things, helping other people. These are the things which really make people happy. And these are the exact things which the advertisers try to distract you from. So many things we can do for free. And as you say, these are these are values which which people have experienced again in their lives during lockdown. We can be a bit forgetful. Do you, how, long, how how enduring do you think these changes are? We saw in America quite a substantial change, for example, relatively quickly uh, in support for Black Lives Matter and so forth. Uh, and then that moved, that changed again. What's your thoughts there? Well, the the danger is that uh, we go right back and say we have to grow the economy, and then suddenly it all becomes about growing the economy rather than actually finding more meaningful, better lives that we can live in harmony with other people and the natural systems around us, so that we all flourish together. Uh, and that's why we need to just keep reminding people that lockdown, big changes were made, people found new ways to find well-being. 
So it would be great if we can make these big changes when we're not threatened by immediate viruses or by climate change, that we make them anyway because they're good changes to make. Is it too late in terms of uh, language? In your experience, how, how long does it take? What's a good index of, of framing, thinking about how language changes and changes behaviour? Okay, well, my personal view is that the stories we live by are extremely entrenched in our society and they're not going to go away anytime soon. That we live in an unsustainable society, which means that it cannot continue forever anyway. So there's two things that are going to happen. One is that we do manage to change. And the other one is that society collapses. And I mean, those are the only two options if you have an unsustainable society. It changes or it collapses. Now, I would say in either of those situations, ecolinguistics and the stories we live by are important. So important either for changing our society or if it does collapse, then we need to find new stories to live by for the survivors to rebuild another more ecologically based civilization afterwards. So either way, we have to question the stories we live by and start looking around and and finding new stories to live by. Either we'll get there in time and, you know, we'll be okay. Or if we don't, we've got these stories there all ready to go when we rebuild civilization. So when we talk about many of these ideas connected to global warming and a a criticism of of the way the world operates, I suppose, in the global economy and and the dangers of overconsumption and so forth. So many of these ideas are actually quite contested ideas and some would argue are come from a a, a left-wing perspective, you know, criticism of big business, criticism of capitalism and so forth. So to what degree is ecolinguistics bathing in a a kind of left-wing marinade, as it were? Well, I, I would say that quite a lot of eco-linguists themselves are left-wing, but eco-linguistics in general isn't left-wing or right-wing because it's a form of analysis where you reveal the stories that our society is built on and then you judge those stories according to your own value system. So you can judge the stories based on a left-wing value system or on a right-wing value system. Now, the key thing about ecolinguistics is that whether it's left or right, it considers not just humans, but also animals, plants, forests, rivers, future generations. It's got this wider perspective. So the one thing about this values framework is that it definitely considers more than just humans. So ecolinguistics can come from any political direction so long as it considers humans and the more than human world. Right. Very interesting. Thank you. One other question just linked to that is, clearly um, we talk about the breakdown of society or civilization, but it's it's not going to happen all at once. Well, who knows, but it's unlikely to happen all at once in one place. So different parts, different communities, there's equality a, a, a questions. But one thing you do already start to see is even amongst groups that were unaccepting what the science of climate change is scapegoating and uh, particular groups of people are responsible for you know the problems and so forth. Does ecolinguistics shed any light on that? Well, ecolinguistics is very much uh, about the relationship of humans with other humans and animals, plants, forests, rivers, and the ecosystems that life depends on. And it very much has a social justice element to it. So we very much care about inequality and we care about well-being, particularly of marginalized groups who are the most vulnerable, the most affected by climate change, but also the very people who have contributed least to climate change. So people tend to think, oh, ecolinguistics is just about animals and plants and the environment. But actually, it's just as much about humans and people, the equalities in our society and and social justice as well. I, I mean, I think the, the area of social ecology is is very interesting and, and, and overlooked. I mean, I really like Murray Bookchin, 
quite brilliant and a really uh, lived experience with these political ideas. He was handing out communist tracts when he was 11 or 12 and, and, and embraced and, and thought through and, and critiqued different political ideologies. Uh, I mean, do you know his work? Yeah, and the, the only trouble with Bookchin is that he argues for social ecology instead of deep ecology. So deep ecology is where you think about the interests, not just of humans, but also of other animals. Uh, that's a contested area, I guess, isn't it, Aaron? Uh, Bookchin, for example, felt that some of the deep ecologists' thinking was quite problematic. Yeah, well, I think that what works best is when you combine deep ecology and social ecology. So you don't need to think of it as either humans or animals. And we should never really think about either humans or the environment or animals because we need both just in order to survive. So my ecosophy, I would say, is a combination of social ecology and deep ecology. And so finding a synthesis that overcomes some of the, the difficulties of both of those frameworks I think it's something really useful to do. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, this idea of characterizing humans as a pathological infestation, uh, you, you can see this in what, what David Foreman was doing at Earth First. They, they are very powerful. Uh, and that's why we create our ecosophy so that we can take aspects of social ecology that work for us and aspects of deep ecology that work for us and weave them together into our own framework. So certainly my framework, I don't include any kind of anti-human aspects in it. So I, I would never talk about humans as a cancer, for instance, although some people do. So that's why it's really important to look at a wide variety of frameworks and really come up with something that works for you. Yes, very interesting. What's next for you, Aaron? Well, I'm now writing a book about eco-narrative because in eco-criticism, which is like the literature-based study of ecology, they do some amazing things with narrative and looking at narrative. Uh, and I've discovered narrative is really very central to how we think about ourselves and how we think about the world around us. So I'm going to be extending our eco-linguistics framework to better incorporate narrative in it. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Aaron. And thank you so much for sharing your research, your work, your inspiration today on the sustainability agenda. Great. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure talking with you about it. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Roman Krisnarek's thought-provoking new book, The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World, which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades, centuries. Available online and in all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.